Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we're going to mark Holy Week with a bunch of movies, because there's no such thing as secular. Hi there, I'm Josh Larson, your host and editor over at Think Christian. We all probably mark Holy Week in different ways because we have different liturgical practices that we follow, depending on our church background. In addition to those good traditions, we thought we would throw a couple of movies into the mix. Abiel Chessy has been writing a series for us over at thinkchristian.net over the last couple of years, pairing certain films with important days on the liturgical calendar, including Good Friday and Easter. Those have been well-received, so we thought it would be fruitful to talk about a couple of her picks here on the show. We're going to list all of the titles, so you'll come away with 10 recommendations, and then we're going to discuss two of them in depth. Abby will be on to talk about one of them, and then I'll also be joined by J.R. Forresteros. First, though, a sincere thanks to those of you who have recently left reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. We've gotten some generous ones in, and yes, they make us feel good, but they also help to keep us on the radar of Apple Podcasts so that people can find us on the platform. Now, one review that warmed our hearts particularly came from Jacob Allen. I'd recommend the show to anyone, whether you're a person of faith or not. I need the reminder that there is room in the kingdom of God for nuance, creativity, and people of all sorts of backgrounds and identities, and each episode of this show gives testimony to that. Thank you so much, Jacob, for leaving that review. We really appreciate it. If other listeners want to go ahead and leave a review as well, it's actually easy to do while you're listening. If you're in the Apple Podcasts app, just scroll down to click on the show link, then scroll down again until you get to reviews. And that's where you can leave one. Thank you very much. With that, let's jump into our list of films for Holy Week, starting with Abby Chessy and a handful of pictures that are evocative of Good Friday. I'm glad that Abby Chessy has wrapped up her film festival coverage and has time to spend with us here on the TC podcast. Both True False and uh, South by Southwest, they're done, right, Abby? You're finished with those? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a a whirlwind week. I think I was home for a total of three days over two weeks between the two of those festivals. And hopefully good stuff. The rest of us should keep an eye out for coming down the rest of the year for the movies. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Definitely. There were a number of really good films at uh, True False. I think one of the probably bigger, higher profile ones that also premiered at South by Southwest is the documentary Fire of Love. It's about- Was this the uh, volcano one? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I feel like it's always a really hard sell when I tell people it's about married volcanologists. But yeah, it's about a pair of, <laughs> of volcanologists who were active in the 60s up until the early 90s. Uh, and they were married to each other. They made a lot of really great films and took a lot of really good footage of active volcanoes and helped us learn about how volcanoes work. Uh, and they were also super cute. So it's it's really fun to watch them being nice. adorable together and also the fruits of their of their labor, which is just visually stunning. I have, yes, I've heard others um, highlight that one. And I've seen some of the images, you know, online that have been posted from some of that footage. Yeah. So yeah, you've got me. I'm hooked. I'm looking for forward to that one for sure. Yeah, it's it's really unique, I think. Good, good. I'll keep my eye out for it. 
So to the business at hand, um, we wanted to kind of build a show around this series of posts that you've been writing for us at Think Christian over on the website, Abby, for the last couple of years now at thinkchristian.net, pairing films with certain days on the church calendar. The first one you did for this actually was for Good Friday. This was back in 2020. So, you know, we've talked about this together as you kind of envisioned how to do this, but I think maybe listeners might be curious to learn a little bit about your process behind this sort of writing, Um, because it is unique. It's an interesting way to approach both film and I think the church calendar. So I'm wondering if you, do you start with the movies basically that are spiritually significant for you and then try to place them on the calendar or do you look at the holy days and then see what films come to mind? Maybe it's something totally different, a mixture of both, but give us a little peek into how you how you approach an assignment like this. Yeah, it was, I think, well, it still is a challenge in interesting ways at different times, uh, depending on what I am writing about. Uh, I know when, I think the last article that I did for this was Pentecost and that one took a little bit. And that was a, actually a fun exercise in kind of discerning what the themes of Pentecost really are. Yeah. But that's that's usually where I like to start from, is to to look at the part of the liturgical calendar that I am considering and what the dominant themes of that are, and then trying to match that to what I know exists in movies that I love and also movies that other people love. In some cases, this has been kind of a group effort in that I will pull other TC writers and other friends who have different experiences than I do and say, mm. listen, do you have any movies that you think are really good for this particular time of the, the liturgical year? A uh, conversation I had with uh, J.R. Forresteros is why Fast and Furious 6 is on <laughs> the, the Pentecost list at all. <laughs> I had an epiphany at some point and I ran it past him and I was like, hey, you like these movies. Does this work? And he was like, absolutely. <laughs> nice. So it's always fun when that works I like out. that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not perfect fitting that JR is going to be on this episode as well. So that fits. And that's smart, too, because I think when it comes to these sorts of um, holidays, we do all come from slightly different backgrounds or sometimes drastically different backgrounds in how we have marked them in our church lives in the past, the traditions we followed, what these days mean to us. So, yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense to kind of do a little polling here and see what things you might want to consider or cover Let's go back to Good Friday. As I said, the first post that you tackled for this series, and you put five movies on your list. So for most of these, it's a list of five. And some of them here do have explicitly religious settings. Some don't. Some are further afield, like Fast and Furious. Uh, But I'm going to list these here so people have a sense of your entire list. You mentioned The Last Temptation of Christ. So Martin Scorsese's controversial 1988 movie, about Jesus' final days, climaxes at Calvary, very fitting. The Mission was another pick of yours. This is a historical drama about Jesuit missionaries in 18th century South America. That one stars Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. A Hidden Life was also on the list. Terrence Malick's most recent film about World War II Austrian martyr Franz Jagerstadter. And then you included two big franchise installments, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So I encourage folks to go to thinkchristian.net to read your thoughts on each one of those. We'll also link to that article in the show notes so it's easy to find. But Abby, we're going to focus on Rogue One. Maybe before we talk about it in Good Friday terms, though, there have been a lot of um, 
There's been a lot of Star Wars content since Rogue One, so maybe you should remind listeners what part of the Star Wars story Rogue One tells. And I'm just going to say, we can go ahead and discuss spoilers because it has been out for a while, and I think in the context of this conversation, we're absolutely going to have to. So so catch us up a little bit on Rogue One, if you don't mind. Yeah, so Rogue One in the Star Wars canon overall takes place just before A New Hope. It is the the story of the group of rebels who are responsible for stealing the Death Star plans and transmitting them to Princess Leia. So basically, it takes us right up until the opening moments of A New Hope. It does a little bit of the thing that critics don't love in movies, which is that it answers questions that nobody really wanted answered, which is, <laughs> why does the Death Star have that weird, obvious flaw? It turns out that's intentional. Um, but it's the... Um, the the real strength of the movie isn't necessarily the way that it answers kind of pedantic questions like that, but the way that it looks at the dynamic of the the group of people who are responsible for getting those plans stolen and the um, kind of tenuous relationship they have to each other and to the concept of hope and to the concept of the rebellion. And how did you receive it when it first came out? Because I was, you know, I think I gave it a middling review, was kind of conflicted. I've come around to it this time on a rewatch a little bit more, I think mostly because I've come to accept this expanded Star Wars universe that we're now living in, you know, MCU style and some of the things you mentioned where they are giving fan service elements. I mean, that that is just kind of what we're living in now, the cyclical nature of returning to this story in some of these locations, maybe after something like The Mandalorian, which I appreciated, Book of Boba Fett, maybe a little bit less, but those have it reignited my interest in these side glances at the franchise. So I think I was just more open to that this time. But how about you? Were you a fan right at the start, I'm assuming? You liked it a little bit more than I did when it first came out? I was. I think I liked this movie a lot more than a lot of people did when it first came out. I was already drawn to the way that Gareth Edwards has just this really interesting focus on details. I think you see it like right in the opening scene. I think that was that was what really grabbed me the first time I watched it was like when you see the main character, Jen Erso, as a child being removed from her family and you see the death of her mother and her father, who's the designer of the, the Death Star weapon, being kind of taken back into the fold. And right before that, when she first bursts into the house, like there's an abandoned tray of like blue milk and glasses. Uh, and then later on, when Jin is on the run and some stormtroopers are looking for her, they find like a little wooden stormtrooper toy. Like these are things that we've never actually seen yeah. in the larger Star Wars universe. We've heard references to them maybe, but we've never actually seen like what would it look like to be a normal person functioning in this society? And I think it's it's really, from a perspective of looking at, at war and emotional trauma related to that and what it looks like to have your life disrupted that suddenly, I feel like this was a movie in the series that already kind of did that a little bit better and a little bit more directly than a lot of the other films had done to that point. No, that makes sense. And the director, Gareth Edwards, you mentioned that attention to detail. I remember appreciating also that opening you called out. And I think that's what I have come to like, especially about The Mandalorian, is we are getting immersed in in these sort of like daily ideas of what it would be like to live in this time and in this place. And I agree that's a strength of the movie. The other thing that I did like when I first saw it was uh, the ending. I really appreciated the sort of boldness of the ending, even at the time. And for me, I think that's where the Good Friday significance can really be felt in how Rogue One comes to a conclusion. So 
Is it the same for you? Are there other elements of the film that play a part into this Good Friday idea as well? Or is it mostly embedded in that ending for you? I think part of it is embedded in the ending, but it's it's a sense that kind of runs throughout the film. Like when this was first announced and you saw initial pictures of like the cast and some some thoughts about what the story was going to was going to be like anybody who was sort of familiar with the with the Star Wars universe up to that point was just like how is this going to go? There's a good chance that it's not going to end well for any of these mm. characters just by design. Mm-hmm. These are not names that we've heard in the larger Star Wars universe. We know kind of the danger inherent in that. We know what state the rebellion is in at the beginning of A New Hope. We know that it's it's quite likely that these characters will die. And then to have that not even avoided, but just like, yeah, brought head on, I thought was, yeah, a very bold choice. And I think could be a reason that some people weren't as receptive to the film when it first came out. I totally get that, especially given that it came out in 2016, which was a pretty grim year for a lot of reasons. It just felt like kind of a downer in a series of downers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've I've really come to to embrace the way that that ends and the way that it kind of addresses the importance of that sacrifice throughout for the entire course of the story. When you think about it, and it really doesn't take a lot of thinking to to realize this, like without the sacrifice, the Star Wars that we know does not exist, which I think has a really strong parallel to the gospel narrative, right? Like without the sacrifice of Christ, Christianity as we know it doesn't really exist. That's kind of the lodestone, right? So I think to have something that includes that same sense of emotional importance with regard to people kind of standing up, doing the right thing, knowing that they are working for something that is larger than them, that's going to have larger implications for a huge number of people, I think is really thematically appropriate for Good Friday and something that's really striking for this movie specifically, because I feel like that doesn't necessarily exist in a lot of the other Star Wars films. Yeah, and I think Edwards depicts that brilliantly in the visuals, too, with how this movie ends, or at least before we get that little bit of an epilogue, which takes us further into A New Hope, but at least where Rogue One proper ends, it is of Jin played by uh, Felicity uh, Jones, and uh, I believe the character's name is Cassian, played by Diego Luna. Mm-hmm. They are sort of the last two standing of this mission, and they are on this planet that is essentially been doomed by the Death Star. There's nothing they can do about it. Their mission has succeeded, but because they have been willing to sacrifice themselves is is how it's presented in the narrative. And the two of them kind of holding each other on this beach, you know, just, just awaiting, not happily awaiting, but accepting what is going to be required of them, I think is a really powerful image. You know, when we talk about, you know, parallels to Good Friday and Christ's sacrifice, I think sometimes one of the things that movie depictions miss out, they're very they're very good on depicting the sacrifice because that is often an action that can be depicted on screen. But I wonder if the idea of atonement gets lost a little bit, which of course is is crucial to a Christian understanding of what happened on Good Friday. And so I'm, I was thinking about that in terms of Rogue One and the, the various sacrifices being made here. Throw something at you, see if it sticks for you, Abby, and maybe you have another idea of thinking about atonement in terms of this movie. But you mentioned Jin's father, played by Mads Mikkelsen, how the movie begins with him. He is this, at that point, a rogue scientist who has left um, the Galactic Empire because he did not want to build the Death Star. For various complications, he gets pulled back in and is reluctantly doing that, yet still has 
despite those reservations, built this weapon, this terrible, terrible weapon. And I wonder if we see Jin's sacrifice, again, she's in that final scene, being in some way an act of atonement for her father. It's enabled by her father. That's the weakness built into it you referenced earlier. You know, he did that. He took action to see that this might happen as well. But I'm wondering if maybe her act is also something of an act of an atonement or if there's other uh, forms of atonement you see in the movie. I don't know if that makes any sense for you. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the concept of atonement is huge. throughout the film. Uh, and I think Jin's journey is part of that. You see all of these characters kind of jaded and compromised when we meet them. Cassian's introduction as well is is one that we don't typically get for what we would consider a heroic character in a Star Wars film, in that he is on a planet with a fellow rebel spy, and he has to get out, and the other guy has a wounded arm, and he's not going to be able to get out as fast. So he just kills him, straight up kills him with a blaster. Yeah, I had forgotten to. that. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really dark introduction. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. I would say that's even darker than whatever you feel about Han shot first. Like that is, he sacrificed somebody <laughs> to do that. And, yeah, and, and he yeah. knows it too. And he feels bad about it. Um, right. And we we kind of get flashes of that throughout that he is, I think, at heart, a good person, that he really believes in the cause of the rebellion, that he has been in this fight, as he mentioned, since he was a child. Everything I did, I did for the rebellion. And every time I walked away from something I wanted to forget, I told myself it was for a cause that I believed in. A cause that was worth it. Without that, we're lost. Everything we've done would have been for nothing. I couldn't face myself if I gave up now. But that that's caused a lot of ethical boundaries to crumble for him Mm. by necessity. Mm -hmm. And he's at the point now where he's not really sure what's worth fighting for and what's possible. The concept of hope comes up several times, and the statement, rebellions are built on hope, comes up twice. I think when Cassian first mentions it to Jin, it's, it's sort of snide. It's, it's kind of a, a sarcastic, you know, oh, rebellions are built on hope. <laughs> when mm. Jin mentions it later in the film, it's a triumphant, like, we need to do this. Rebellions are built on hope. And then the final mention that we get from Leia is that she has been given the gift of hope. And that is, I think, when it rings the most true. So we go from this kind of cynical, we sort of believe it, but do we really, to if we really believe it, we have to act, to we have it, we believe it, it's going to happen. Which I think also is kind of reflective of the journey of Good Friday, right? The way that the disciples are kind of disillusioned, scared, unsure when Jesus is first arrested, when they are brought even in some cases to the point of denial for their own sake, uh, when he is crucified, and then upon his return and after their mourning, greeted with with the gift of hope and the gift of truth. And yes, this is this is actually this was what was always going to happen, and this thing that we fought for but wasn't sure was going to happen actually did. There's a lot of atonement that goes on in the film, and there's a lot of atonement with uncertainty that comes with it, which I feel like is very appropriate to Good Friday, where Mm. you know you have something that you believe is worth fighting for, but like the way that we feel at the end of Good Friday, the film ends with an uncertainty for the characters who are directly involved as to whether or not what they did actually worked. We know it worked, but they don't. And I feel like that's a, that's a huge part of the effectiveness. Yeah, that's true. And I like 
making that connection with Cassian's sort of journey throughout the film because I like that it is Jin and Cassian who are the two characters left there that we're left with. So that's very fitting. Was there anything else, you know, on this revisit you wanted to to mention about Rogue One or do you think we pretty much covered it? We haven't really talked much about K2, who's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> he's oh, he's the, so great, uh, yes. Yeah, the Imperial droid who is uh, reprogrammed to work for the Rebellion, basically, voiced by Alan Tudyk, I think. And I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting arc, too, in terms of redemption, in that by his very identity, he has to kind of work against his programming and constantly prove to people and constantly prove to Jin specifically that he is good and that he is working for good. And their relationship, I think is a really interesting one in those terms. Um, I think right before K2 sacrifices himself, which to me is like the first really emotional death in the film, like Galen's death, spoilers, is sad, but kind of inevitable. K2's is a real No, I would agree, yeah. I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because that's that's sort of when things start to get real for like the main characters that we're super invested in. But right before he kind of sacrifices himself, he he speaks with Jin and he says that her behavior is, is... I think, consistently unpredictable or or surprising. Mm. And for a strategic droid, which is what he is, I feel like that's that's pretty huge that he's gone from, like, she, she has completely, I think, redeemed herself in his eyes. I think he has also redeemed himself in her eyes. And that's, like, a real, I think, moment of connection, which makes his death all the sadder, really, because, like, they just connected and they were just sure. becoming friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a yeah. moment I love as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that character because that was another part that really worked for me upon initial viewing. And it is remarkable when you look at, you know, these Star Wars films overall, that this concept of a droid, how many unique personalities are given where they are as fully envisioned as any of the human or the more humanoid alien characters. You know, we really do find ourselves attached to these droids, including here in Rogue One. Thank you so much, Abby. Again, we're going to let listeners check out your post to to read about those other Good Friday films you chose. We'll maybe list them on the show page for this episode and then, of course, link to the full post if they want to read more. But thank you for taking the lead on this series. It's one I've enjoyed editing. I always love seeing what titles are going to come back at me (laughs) when you do this. Yeah. Um, So that's been enjoyable. And yeah, thanks for coming on the show to discuss it with me. Yeah, thanks so much, Josh. This was really fun. What a difference a week can make. Hello, I'm your musical liturgist, John J. Thompson, and that was a little bit of Where Do We Go by Solange, a song that reminds me of the confusion and dismay the disciples may have been feeling when their Lord was executed. I believe that Holy Week definitely deserves its own playlist, so I sure hope you enjoy the 80 songs I have chosen and arranged to mark each day of Holy Week. A bit later in the show, you'll hear some of There Is a Light That Never Goes Out by the Smiths, and that is just the beginning. 
If you grew up in a liturgical church, like, say, St. Mark's Episcopal, where I attended, you're probably familiar with the significance of each day, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. But many of my less liturgical friends might not be familiar with Holy Monday, when we remember Jesus cursing the fig tree, cleansing the temple, and having his authority questioned. You might not know about Holy Tuesday, when we consider Jesus predicting his own death, or Spy Wednesday, when we remember Judas betraying Jesus, as well as Jesus being anointed by Mary. You might know about Monday Thursday and the washing of feet at the Last Supper, but of course, everyone is familiar with Good Friday. On Holy Saturday, we're invited to consider the time Jesus spent in the grave and the feelings of loss experienced by the disciples as they hid in that upper room. Then, of course, Easter Sunday. Yep, there are songs for each of these days. So, in addition to watching the great films discussed on this episode, maybe consider making some time to spin this mix as well. You can find it on the main Think Christian profile on Spotify or just by clicking the links in the most recent email you've gotten from us. What are your favorite Holy Week songs? Tweet at me, at John J. Thompson, and I just might add your ideas to the mix. In the meantime, though, enjoy the rock, folk, rap, alternative, indie, and other songs I've gathered for you. And here's hoping that you have a thoughtful, engaged, and meaningful Holy Week. It's Josh Larson back with the TC Podcast, looking ahead to Easter with J.R. Foresteros. It always feels a bit strange to talk about Easter before we've experienced Good Friday, J.R., but you're a pastor. You're used to planning the church calendar well in advance of the actual day, kind of being in two headspaces at once, right? That's right. I'm actually working on my Easter sermon this week. So, I, yeah, I feel that weird tension of, wait, we're still in Lent, but yes. So There you go. All right. Perfect, because we want to riff on Abiel Chessie's post, fourthinkchristian.net, five films for Easter. And it's a good list, but I do have a clear favorite uh, that we're going to spend some time on. But briefly here, before we do that, I want to mention those other titles that she includes in her roundup. So she talks about the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Clear Easter resonance there, Right. And then she has a couple of more surprising picks. I think The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, a 1988 fantasy film from Terry Gilliam. Midnight Special, which is a good but very small-scale sci-fi drama. And then the Lego Movie 2, the second part. Now, listeners are going to have to go to the website to find out why Abby thinks the Lego Movie 2 is an Easter experience, JR. Because you and I, we're going to dig into her fifth pick, and that is the 1999 animated film, The Iron Giant. Is that right? Or did you want to Did you want to? Oh, no, just I, go I'm sideways into yeah. Lego Movie? <laughs> That's right. I'll always talk about the Lego Movie, but no, we should definitely talk about The Iron Giant. There's plenty to talk about there. Sounds good. Uh, Iron Giant, a film that, you know, some people loved right away, got good reviews, but flopped at the box office for whatever reason in 99. Since then... It has really grown in stature, uh, including as one of the last great films to employ traditional animation style. There is some computer animation going on there, too. But if you look at it, it really feels like that almost hand-drawn style. And uh, the more we get away from that, I think The Iron Giant, to me, stands out as one of those last gasps in an unfortunate, almost lost art form. There's some you'll see of it here and there now, but not as much as you used to. So, Jer, tell us, um, maybe tell folks who aren't familiar with The Iron Giant, kind of the basic plot here, but then I'd also like to hear how you discovered it, what your history with it has been. Sure. So, The Iron Giant is uh, sort of Iron Man before Iron Man was cool, right? He is uh, he's an, a big space robot 
that crashes to Earth in the in the early in the Cold War. It's it's actually right after the Russians have launched Sputnik into space, and so there's this there's this uh, you know meteor impact, and and a, a young boy finds this giant robot, and he befriends it. We learn the robot's memory has been wiped, and over the course of the film, the robot slowly gains its memories back, and we learn that it was created by aliens to be a uh, sort of a, a line of defense, like a, a basically a drone soldier. And so it's it's a weapon, right? That's what it's there for. And the boy, in the meantime, compares the Iron Giant to Superman, says that he really thinks that the the, the giant is heroic. And so that that's sort of the heart, the tension at the heart of the film is, is the giant a weapon or can he be a hero? And so, of course, the U.S. military gets involved because this is Cold War, and it all culminates with this big showdown where the giant thinks that the boy is dead. Of course, he's not because this is an animated movie, right? And the giant uh, kind of gives in to his nature and almost goes to war with the U.S. Army, pulls back at the last minute, and then it's too late. The Army has already launched a nuclear missile. Again, it's a little more complicated than that, but the nuclear missile gets launched. And so after a, a heartfelt goodbye, Gave me kind of T2 vibes. You know, the, I know mm. now why you cry, but it is yeah, something I could never do. Uh, For flies sure. <laughs> up, intercepts the missile, is exploded. Everyone thinks the Iron Giant is dead. But of course, in the final scene of the film, we get just the tease of resurrection. So we have the, you know, the Iron Giant sacrificing himself, giving up his own life in truly heroic fashion for not only the boy, but also for the U.S. military and the whole town, Rockwell, I believe is the town's name. Yeah, uh, sounds and so, right. You know, dying for everyone, even those who are attacking him. And then we get, again, just the tease of resurrection at the end, the promise that the giant is is coming back to life. So yeah, that's a very small nutshell of a movie that has a lot of fun layers. This is one of those, okay, so it came out the year that I graduated from high school. This was the year, we just got a book that was all about how 1999 was somehow just this incredible year for film. Yeah, amazing year, absolutely. And so I honestly, it it dropped through the cracks for me. I don't remember seeing a trailer for this movie. I don't mm. remember, I don't remember seeing it at theaters, and I went to the theater a lot in 1999. It's one of those movies that I became aware of because people kept talking about it, you know? Yeah. And honestly, I actually, my wife and I did not see it for the first time until last year. We finally decided oh, we wow. needed to sit down and see what all the fuss is about with Iron Giant. So we we rented it and watched it. Obviously, no Brad Bird, uh, writer-director, his work from Pixar and all the stuff he's been doing since then. But it's a great movie. It's a great kids movie. Has a lot of good a lot of good themes about nature versus nurture and, you know, can you choose to be something other than what you are? And then, of course, the the Easter themes of, you know, sacrificing oneself, laying down one's life for not only one's friends but one's enemies, and then, and then resurrection. So, Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about it in the context of 1999 because, yeah, you had Fight Club, The Matrix, The Sixth Sense, uh, Blair Witch Project. We could go on and on. And I was trying to remember, so I have top 10 lists going back to 1998, and it's not on mine to my shame. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, I wasn't working, I don't think at that point I was working as a full-time movie critic yet, but I was certainly doing freelance work, and it must have slipped by me as well. I, I almost wonder if I had seen it or if I had to catch up with it later, because of a smaller release, as you said. I don't remember if it got that wide of a release or 
uh, what it might have been or if I was just awash in all those other titles. But it is one that I eventually, you know, did see and came to appreciate and love revisiting. For me, it does come back to a lot of that animation style, the nostalgia of it, but just the artistry in it and the character animation in particular. You, you said he's big, but this this robot yeah. is like, we're talking Godzilla size, right? And yet, somehow, the movie manages to combine that intimidation factor with giving this robot a lot of personality, his from crash landing on Earth, his jaw is a little crooked, which sometimes makes him look like he's smiling. There's the dent in his helmet, which, which makes him seem a little vulnerable. So he has those elements, but he's also very cool in a robot-y way that, uh, you know, any kid who's into, like, sci-fi stuff would just love sort of the Art Deco flair from even earlier Atomic Age illustrations and posters we're familiar with. So it has that. And then also Vin Diesel is the voice. You know, he doesn't get a lot of lines, but I think he kind of brings that same combination, the burliness, but also a personal approachability. So I just love the animation that's at work in this movie. Oh, it just, it makes me wonder, you mentioning that, you know, Vin Diesel voice of Groot also, which is a similar, right. like, he gets three words <laughs> and has to do so much. It makes me wonder if we... uh if we get lost in the fast and furiousness of Vin Diesel and don't appreciate a lot of the heavy lifting he's doing with, uh, with honestly fairly thankless voice acting roles. Like it is hard to do what he manages to do with both yeah. of those, those roles, you know, and it's I nice. literally am just thinking about that right now. Yeah, no, it's nice to have, it's nice to have that balance to the, you know, kind of the caricature of Vin Diesel we get in some of his other stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> so in your very impressive breakdown, I mean, you took us, quickly through pretty much the Iron Giant there, JR, which is which is fine. We're all spoilers on this episode. We have to be given the context we want to talk about. But you already kind of touched on the resurrection and the Easter implications here, right? And they do start with that Superman connotation, which the movie makes very literal, as you said. You you might get a sense of it as a viewer just from the opening when we see, you know, this this being land from outer space onto Earth and being somewhat confused. But yeah. There's a Superman comic book referenced, and even the robot himself, he finds in this junkyard something that has an S on it. And after he's been introduced to the comic, he kind of finds a way to attach it to his chest. And I think he, in that moment when he collides with the missile, doesn't he even say Superman? Yep. Yeah. So so it's all over there. And of course, Superman is often considered to be like one of the pop culture Christ figures, at least as he's been, you know, accepted and carried on in the years and interpreted by various audiences. Is there anything else? Maybe that overarching theme is there. Are there any, any other details that struck you in terms of Iron Giant being an Easter film or a resurrection film? You know, I, I think we need to make more about the fact that it's after the turn, right? We don't have a moment of Jesus giving into his human nature. The closest we might get to that is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he asks, like, can we please activate a plan B or a plan C? Like, is there any other way to do this? But mm -hmm. if not, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, right? That's, that's probably the closest we get to Jesus not following God's will. Even in that space, he's he's honest and he's full of, you know, I would be suspicious of anyone who like gleefully uh, skips towards the cross, right? So so it's not surprising that he doesn't sure. want to die. 
so so it's not it's not that he sins there. It's just that he 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 experiences the full weight of his human uh, finiteness, you know, his finitude mm-hmm. there. The Iron Giant, though, does have this space where he like gives over to his what we would call like I don't know drone defensive programming and goes full like yeah murder programming bot, right? I so, think works. So that's like that's a difference. But then once once we're on the other side of that, when the robot realizes that you know Hogarth is okay, and now there's this missile that's coming, there is a way to write this story where he takes the boy and leaves and they're just okay. Or Mm. where he reorients the missile at the military people and destroys, you know, allows them to be destroyed by the consequences of their own choice. I mean, there's several different ways to do this, but what we get is him dying for, in the language of the film, the world, right? He dies for basically all of the characters that we have met in the film, right? So yeah, the whole world is not in danger but the world of everyone that we know, good and bad and in between. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that's really important because a lot of what we see in the Easter story are these people who are against Jesus. You know, the 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 Judean, uh, you know, the, the citizens of Jerusalem who are calling for his death, the religious leaders who are conspiring and uh, manipulating their own laws to, to do this, the, the Romans who are just looking for an easy way to, you know, keep peace and, and, and all of that. Like all of these people from the actively evil to the passively evil to the people who just stand back and let things happen are included in Jesus's forgiveness and in his resurrection. And, and, I think sometimes we miss that in our evangelical way of talking about Jesus dying for our sins at Easter. You know, mm. it's it's a thought of more in personal terms is what you're saying. Yeah, like, which is great, right? Like I I love it when people understand mm-hmm. that God loves them and cares for. But when we then extend that to specifically our enemies, you know, that mm. that God also loves them, and that in a way, one thing I've said before is. Jesus dies for us so that we can die then with Jesus, right? Jesus invites us to pick up our own crosses and follow him. And I love that you started the whole episode by saying it's weird for us to be thinking about the empty tomb before the cross because that's the order of things in scripture, right? Like we want to skip sometimes to the resurrection story and to the good and to the flourishing without having to pick up our own crosses and follow Jesus. Mm. And so I think that's one of the reasons the Iron Giant has only gained in popularity because it's it's significantly more profound than even a lot of the Christ allegories that we get. Yeah. And I think that is a startling development when you do see that that is going to be the robot's choice, not to be the more action heroic decision, which might be some of those other options you talk about, and certainly including the military and the lead government agent who has at this point, you know, he's He's really, uh, I think, kidnapped or at least been on the verge of abusing this kid and trying to get the information. I mean, there's a villain, like a straight-up villain in that government agent. And um, even he, as you said, is kind of included in this act of of saving grace. And that scene you mentioned earlier, the resurrection scene, there's something really interesting about it. It does come... You know, I forget if it's like a few months later, we get this sort of after the robot has met the missile, we get a couple of months, it might be years, but but it's down the line. And Hogarth is given from one of the military leaders this screw that is part of the robot that they uncovered. 
And what happens, and we've seen this earlier in the film, that if um, the robot is damaged, it can activate the damaged part to reattach itself, right? So, so this screw begins moving, and it ends up kind of rolling out of Hogarth's window. And I love how Hogarth seems to know what's happening. I, for, I forget if he says goodbye or something like that. And then we follow this screw traveling, it looks like, to the almost to the North Pole. And as we go, we see another part of the Iron Giant and another part. And they each start to get activating and going towards eventually where we see his head is kind of sending out that that signal. And it struck me that there's one very interesting connection there. It's the bodily nature of the resurrection. Like we see all of these body parts coming together and um, that's very evocative of the way <laughs> the resurrection uh, of the body is part of Christ's story, right? And it's part of the promise for us. So it's not only that, uh, that's what the Easter story gives us. It's not only that Christ has risen and then floats away, but there's this time in the gospel, right, where in bodily form, he is spending time with others and visiting them and and really continuing the ministry that he had started beforehand, but it is in this bodily form. So I just like that touch in the movie. I mean, again, to your point of like, how could you have done this? So many ways they could have depicted the robot coming back. That itself is maybe like not the biggest surprise, especially in a family movie, but a really interesting choice to kind of do it in this very bodily way. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> it's funny as, cause as, as we were talking and I had another thought that connects to that so thoroughly, cause it, it begs the question, not in a way that says we want to see an iron giant too, though the movie's great and we love to spend more time in the world, but we don't, we don't need to see what happens next. I think the film is complete and the story is complete, but you know, when, when the giant first appears from the heavens, he is a figure who inspires in most of Again, I'm going to use the world here in the terms we were earlier, like the world of the people we meet in the film, inspires fear. Mm -hmm. And and we see that this is because it's against a backdrop of the Cold War and all this kind of stuff. Right. But, uh, you know, we get in that little flash forward before the screw makes its little journey, we get, you know, a statue of the robot and we see that that his presence has now become a symbol of hope. And And again, I think about that when we talk about incarnation. This is that, right? If you go back to a lot of ancient mythology, it was always a mixed bag when the gods came to the earth. You know, you mm. never knew for sure whether they were there just to fulfill their own carnal pleasures or whether they were there to play tricks or whether they might be there to help you. Like that happens sometimes too. But it was mm -hmm. their arrival was at best a source of ambivalence and oftentimes fear. And I think what we see with Jesus is this, you know, what we said, if we can go back to the other holiday, Christmas, right? It's uh, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and that that's good news. And that we see that all the way through the cross, to your point, it's not just that Jesus's death created a world where we could live free of fear. It's that then he is raised bodily to inhabit that world with us. Mm. And so it's kind of fun for me riffing off of what you said about the robot's bodily resurrection to imagine when the robot goes back and visits Hogarth. And now we have the robot living in this world bodily right. with his like new family, we could say mm -hmm. in a world where they're not afraid of him anymore, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and again, I just, again, see so many echoes of that where, uh, you know, the, the author of Hebrews talks about how when God descended onto the mountaintop, everyone was terrified and he says, and yet we have God in Christ who lives with us. How, like, 
it, mm. it's simultaneously how much more terrifying should it be to have God like where we can reach out and and touch him and yet also what we have instead of fear is this peace and this love you know so I don't know I, that I hadn't thought about that before we started recording but when you talked about the robot's bodily resurrection that that's kind of where I went yeah and I like that idea of um <laughs> the the giant returning to be embraced the way that Hogarth immediately embraced him, but everyone else was either the opposite or had to had to come around a little bit. That said, I think the movie, I, I agree with you, adds perfectly. You know, I, I'm glad we don't see him, you know, completely coming together and flying off for this, this hug or whatever with Hogarth. I think it ends on a really, really lovely note and leaves that to our imagination. So that's one of its strengths as well, for sure. Well, thanks, JR. I feel like it's been a long time since we talked. I forget which episode you were on last, but um, this is good to have you back. What if anything you've been up to that TC listeners might want to check out? Uh, other podcasts or other things you've been writing? My Fast A podcast that I co-host regularly just at our March Madness episode where we take a bunch of pop culture. So it's film, TV, memes, current events, and we just completely arbitrarily pit them against each other and argue about them until we get to a final game. So it always proves to be one of our most popular episodes uh, of the year. Oh, yeah? And uh, yeah, so we just we just released that uh, it'll be a couple weeks ago now when this episode airs. So yeah, surely TC listeners would enjoy that. Yeah, it sounds fun. Are you at a point where you can say like certain memes or certain characters that are looking to, to have a good run or... So I'll say this, but I feel comfortable saying this by the time it comes out. The final game was between Chloe Zhao winning the first bet woman of color to win best director and Squid Game. So, okay. So <laughs> now let me wrap my mind around this. So that, that's basically that idea. Chloe Zhao winning is up against that series and you have to yeah. choose which you value more. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I thought the film spotting madness we do on the, the film spotting <laughs> podcast pitting movies against each other was kind of uh, crazy, but this is really, this is really bending my brain. Yeah. It's even more arbitrary. That's, that's the whole thing, right? Like, like when, yes. when we give our reasons, it's like, okay, I mean, what, you know, whatever. Sure. Like I can't argue like with film spotting. I feel like, yeah, you guys, you guys like know what you're talking about and there are criteria by which we judge movies. And so there's like a case to be made. Ours is just, just madness in its purest sense. It sounds like it. Well, I'm going to I'm going to vote uh, for Chloe Zhao just because I didn't watch Squid Game, so that's an easy answer for me. Um, and yeah, would, I I would also encourage... chose her because okay. I really liked Eternals a lot more than most people did. Apparently, mm, so you're one of those. You're one of those I Eternals of those. defenders. Okay, I wouldn't say I'm a defender. Its... I would just say I personally enjoyed it a lot, and I liked it even better okay. the second time I watched it. Fair enough. It, it had its good qualities. I'll, I'll give you that. And Zhao is definitely an incredible filmmaker. All right. So that's the fascinating podcast. When uh, listeners are done hearing this, they can head over there. Thanks again, JR. This was fun. Always a pleasure, Josh. Thank you. And if a Morrissey, you're a confounding man, but you did make some good music, especially with The Smiths. That is, The Smiths, There's a Light That Never Goes Out from 1986. 
a Holy Saturday Easter song for those who have ears to hear. Thanks to John J. Thompson for providing a secular soundtrack to Holy Week with the Spotify playlist that he compiled for this episode. You missed hearing a few selections of his if you're watching this on YouTube, but if you search for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify, you can hear the Smiths, Solange, and a bunch of other songs that speak to Holy Week in some way. Thanks to John J. Thompson, Abby, and JR for joining me on this show. You can follow all of them on Twitter at John J. Thompson, at JR Foresteros, and at Abby Chessy. They make it easy for you. We, of course, are on Twitter and Facebook as well, at Think Christian. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported program of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassett. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.